0: Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day, we thank you for the great privilege to gather as the body of Christ on the the first day of the week and to worship you. Uh, We thank you Lord for your word, Uh, we thank you for the opportunity we have today to gather around your word and study it. Uh, We thank you for your sovereignty over all things, from the beginning of time all the way to the end of time and every single moment in between. We thank you for your love and mercy and grace that you poured out on each and every one of us, especially in sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins. We pray, Lord, that as we study your word, you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and really teach us what you want us to learn from your word today, and help us not only to be hearers of the word but doers of the word, so that in our daily lives and our walk with you, that uh, we would be filled with your word, uh, that. Everything that we see around us would be informed by your word, and that every uh, thought of our heart and the actions of our lives would be in accordance with your commands. We thank you, Lord, for uh, for you for who you are, and we thank you for the opportunity to worship you today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, Amen. All right, welcome back to those who were at the Women's Conference last week. Uh, I heard it went very well, and as a matter of fact, I found out afterwards that the lady who was teaching at the Women's Conference was actually in this class. Uh, I didn't realize that, but she was sitting right up here in in the front, and somebody told me afterwards that was her, that was the the lady that was uh, teaching at the conference. Um, So, good, it's good to have you back. Uh, ladies that were, that were there last week. Okay, so uh, we're on to part uh, nine of our series. We finished uh, Revelation chapter one and Revelation chapter two. We're going to be starting in Revelation chapter three today. And we're going to be talking about the letter to the church in Sardis, which is identified as the dead church. And, and you don't want to be known as the dead church. No. Uh, not a good thing. Um, so what we're going to learn today? We're going to learn about this letter. Uh, we're going to learn about who the correspondent is. Who's from the church that it was written to? The city, and you'll notice a little bit different in the pattern this time. Every other letter, there's been a commendation, a praise, a giving. There is no such thing for this church. It's not a praise to him. He goes right into the concern and then the command, and then there's a little bit of a commendation towards the end, but it's a different pattern from all the other letters. No praise up front for this dead church. But first we'll do a little review, especially for those who uh, weren't able to make it last week. So So we listened. I listened. So yeah, okay, so there was the opportunity to listen, so hopefully uh, you were able to listen, but we'll do a review anyway. Um, so the last letter was the one to Thyatira, the longest one, uh, the longest letter of um, the seven. Uh, as with the others' uh, letters, there's an identification of the sender uh, using imagery from the previous chapter, from chapter one. Uh, he's identified as the son of God, feet like gorgeous bronze, eyes like flames of fire. It's kind of a terrifying description of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and a sobering realization that he's coming as judge of unrepentant sin. The Bible does not tell us um, about the founding of the church of Thyatira, no specifics. There was for Ephesus, but the rest of these churches so far, we've had no specific description in the rest of the New Testament about how the church started, uh, except for the description in Acts chapter 19 that the word went out um, uh, that the that, uh, Uh, The gospel went out from Ephesus to the rest of the province of Asia. We do get a description of one woman who was from Thyatira in Acts chapter 16, a woman named Lydia, uh, and she meets Paul in Philippi uh, during his ministry in Philippi. So she's not in Thyatira when she meets Paul. She's actually in another city uh, in Greece, and she's from a a city in in the province of Asia in, in modern Turkey. But she, but her name is mentioned in the Bible. A, a woman, probably a prominent woman from uh, the city of Thyatira. Um, so this is uh, more. This is starting to go inland. Uh, Thyatira. The the initial three cities are on the coast, and then you start going inland for this city. Uh, it became a part of the Roman Empire, 190 BC. Uh, it flourished as a commercial center. Um, it had these guilds like. Uh, the ancient equivalent of uh, labor unions. It was not a particular center of religious worship and it didn't have a large Jewish population. So uh, the pressure on this church didn't come from those kinds of things. It came from the fact that people were involved in commercial activities. And if you wanted to be part of, if you wanted to have a living, you had to be part of these guilds. And the guilds had some kinds of uh, feasts and festivals with pagan revelry. And you had a choice, either you engaged in these things and you had a living, or you didn't, and you didn't have a living. And so that was a, um, a point of kind of peer pressure or cultural pressure on the church, and the church at Thyatira was not doing so well. Uh, and that their their reaction to that was causing concern for the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he, he starts out the letter to Thyatira with a commendation though, a praise for them. Uh, they knew their deeds. Um, And that they were, these deeds uh, were in four categories, love, faith, service, and perseverance. And he talked about the fact that faith and love grow into service and perseverance. So the faith and love form the foundation, the service and perseverance is the outworking of those internal um, realities in a true believer. Uh, And that the deeds were growing for for the true believers within the church. Despite that, of course, there were problems. Uh, all was not well at the church. Uh, they didn't have external uh, persecution per se from a religious organization, but internal compromise. Um, so, and there was this woman who was a prophetess, who called herself a prophetess, and she's identified with Jezebel, who's an Old Testament uh, person that was the wife of King Ahab, the queen of Israel, um, and that she, of course, led Israel into Baal worship. and and great immorality and idol worship. And there's a parallel here to what was happening in Thyatira. So that's why the name is used Jezebel. Uh, And so she was leading the the servants of Christ to commit acts of immorality uh, and eat things sacrificed to idols. Uh, The the Lord Jesus Christ had given even this false prophetess an opportunity to repent, but she refused. Uh, So divine judgment was coming for Jezebel, but also for those that were following her. Um, And then also for kind of a new generation that was coming up uh, that were uh, identified as her spiritual children. Now the scripture tells us that it was too late for Jezebel. Her opportunity to repent had come and gone, but these others that were following her uh, were called to repent, as if there was still an opportunity for them to repent. He After he's given this dire warning to those that are followed, to the false prophetess and those who are following her, um, he does give um, um, a kind of a um, comfort to those who are uh, the remnant, those who are holding fast to the true teachings but are not holding to the false teaching of Jezebel and he says I, I have no other burden for you in other words it's bad enough that you have to live in this situation with this false prophetess and these people who are following her i have no other burden for you uh, but don't become overconfident uh, he urges them to hold fast to what they have um, and, then he's, and then he uh, gives an additional comfort that whoever overcomes and keeps the, the deeds until the end uh, he gives these promises that they'll uh, they'll be with him Um, They'll have authority over the nations uh, in the millennial kingdom. And he promises the morning star or himself, all of himself, eventually. Um, So there's three important things that come out in our uh, letter to Thyatira last week. Uh, The the seriousness of practicing and tolerating sin within the church, that God will judge. Uh, A pattern of obedience is what marks the true Christian. And God's promise to his own in spite of struggles with sin and error in church is that if you remain steadfast, you'll experience the fullness of Christ, reign with him in his kingdom. Uh, and then we, we finished it up last week by uh, noting that the church at Thyatira had disappeared by the end of the second century. It was completely gone. And there'll be a contrast with the church today that seems to be in much worse shape. Um But it doesn't disappear by the end of the second century like this Thyatira church does. Okay, so any questions about last week? Uh, We talked about this, uh, the letter to Thyatira. Okay, let's launch into the letter to uh, Sardis. If you open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, we're going to be reading the first six verses of Revelation chapter 3. This is the word of the Lord. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it, and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the Book of Life, and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So that's the word of the Lord, the message, the letter to the church in Sardis. Uh, so remember, we are, the um, Patmos is where John is, and then there's seven messengers to take these seven letters, and first one goes to Ephesus, and then Smyrna, and then Pergamon, and then Thyatira, and now we're to Sardis. Uh, Most likely the messengers are um, elders, pastors of each of the churches, uh, dropping one off as you go. So they've dropped off one one guy in Ephesus, and Smyrna, and Pergamon, and Thyatira, and now we're down to just three as we get to Sardis. Uh, But they're taking copies of the whole book of Revelation, and particularly everybody gets to hear this letter read out. So this is a church that assembles, and they hear their pastor tell them that they're a dead church. So just put yourself in a position uh, that the pastor comes in and says, Jesus Christ tells us we're a dead church. I have this letter from, from Christ himself, and he's identified us as a dead church. What is yeah, that more a fault of the people in the church or of the pastor? So, it's a good question. It's a good question. There's a responsibility of the leadership that's exactly right. Uh, however, God judges each person one by one. Uh, so, I would say both. There's definitely a responsibility of leadership. But, regardless of your leadership, does that absolve you of your responsibility for Christ? I would say no. So um, the Bible describes a greater responsibility for those who preach and teach. But it does not say that therefore, if you're under bad teaching, you're not responsible. It doesn't say that. And the way you are, responsible to leave and find another church. Well, that's true. That's true. That's true. So here we have Sardis, and right out of the gate is criticism. Not a commendation right out of the gate. Uh, You're dead. Then there's an exhortation to wake up. And then there is a praise that there is a small remnant. So this is different from some of the early churches where there was a little bit of difficulty in the church, but most people were okay. This is no, there's just a very tiny sliver of the congregation that's still okay. A small remnant. Um, And then, of course, there's a reward for those who remain steadfast. Be dressing white, never blotted from the Book of Life. So, um, we get started here with the typical greeting, very similar to the other letters. The angel of the Church of Sardis writes, He who has the seven spirits and seven stars says, I know your deeds, that you have a name that you're alive, but you are dead. So, we have a description of the divine author of this letter and it's from the vision that John had in in, uh, chapter one. Uh, The letter to Sardis has an additional component that comes from Revelation chapter one, verse four, with this description of the seven spirits. (coughs) So, the seven spirits, that phrase, uh, could refer to Isaiah chapter two, the Holy Spirit is described as the spirit of the Lord, wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, and fear, that's seven, not seven spirits, but really, what does the number seven really signify to the Hebrews? Completed. Completeness. and why does it why does it um, represent completeness? Creation. Creation. Seven days of creation. So God completed everything, made the whole entire universe in in these seven days, and that was complete. And so that was the number of completeness. And the Holy Spirit is completely holy, um, the ultimate Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And so described as seven spirits, the complete spirit, uh, in that way. Uh, there's also uh, the Holy Spirit described as a lampstand of seven lamps. That's where the Jews get the menorah. Uh, that's in Zechariah chapter 4. But that's just another symbol of seven being the, the, the number of completeness. So the reference to the Spirit's fullness. Uh, Jesus Christ is represented in his church through the Holy Spirit. Uh, the seven stars, of course, as we've seen before, are the seven messengers or elders from uh, chapter 1, verse 20, uh, one from each of the seven churches. who would like to carry a copy of the book of Revelation back to their respective churches. Uh, his introduction of himself in this case does not uh, hint at the severity of the situation in Sardis. We had that in previous ones where he had the Um, You know, the eyes like fire, you had the sharp double-edged sword in one of them, that that this judgment was coming, but this description of him doesn't sound like that. It doesn't doesn't, uh, talk about the severity in the description of Christ. Um, Instead, he depicts himself as the one uh, who has sovereignty and works in his church through the Holy Spirit and through godly leaders. So that introduction would have been a reminder to the Sardis church of what they lacked. Uh, they were devoid of the spirit. Uh, the church in Sardis was dead, uh, populated by the unredeemed. Um, so this, this seven, um, the seven spirits is what they didn't have in, in this case. Um, and so as, as with the last several churches, uh, there's no details in scripture about the founding of this church in Sardis. Uh, so most likely, it was a church plant of people going out from the church that Paul established in Ephesus. So Paul spent uh, three years pouring into the church in Ephesus, and it, at the end of that, uh, that description of his ministry in Ephesus, it says in Acts chapter 19, that the gospel went out to all the province of Asia from Ephesus. And so most likely, that's what we see in several of these churches here, that the gospel radiated out from Ephesus and it made it to Sardis at some point, but we don't know exactly when and how that occurred. We do have, from outside the Bible, some descriptions of the church in Sardis, and including a famous person called Melito, uh, who was an early apologist, one who wrote in defense of Christianity, and he served as bishop of Sardis, uh, bishop as overseer, pastor, elder of Sardis in the late second century. So a hundred years after the book of Revelation was written, the church of Sardis was still there. And there was a, a, a good and godly bishop who was running the church a hundred years after this letter was written. Unlike Thyatira, which had completely disappeared within a few decades after the book of Revelation, Sardis was still there. Uh, He also wrote the earliest known commentary on passages from Revelation, this man um, Melito, in uh, in Sardis. The letter does not speak of persecution. Uh, Why would Satan bother? Uh, If it's a dead church already, there's no need for uh, persecution of that church. Uh, There's no specific reference to false doctrine or false teachers or corrupt living. Yet some combination of these things must have taken place uh, because the church is now dead. It's already dead by the time Christ is is writing these seven letters. So something happened uh, to cause them to be dead. But there's no detailed description of that here. The city itself, the city of Sardis, uh, founded about 1200 B.C., um, it was one of the greatest cities in the ancient world uh, long, long before um, the events that we're talking about here. It was it was the capital of a kingdom called Lydia, an ancient kingdom called Ly- Lydia that was fabulously wealthy. Uh, the uh, the man named Aesop, the famous writer of fables, Aesop's fables, uh, is reported to have been uh, from Sardis. Um, and much of their wealth came from gold. Uh, The uh, Kingdom of Lydia included this uh, Pactolus River which was near Sardis, and archaeologists have found hundreds of crucibles that were used to melt down and refine gold in the ruins of Sardis. And uh, supposedly gold and silver coins uh, were first minted in Sardis. so it was an ancient city, it was a wealthy city, it had been the capital of this, uh, this famous kingdom called Lydia um, more than a thousand years before it became part of the Roman Empire. It, it's, uh, its wealth and its trade primarily came because it was the western end of the famous road. So there was an east-west road that started in the capital of the Persian Empire in Susa on the east, And the western end of the road was Sardis, and so it was a main thoroughfare for trade and commerce in the ancient world, and there was Sardis at the end of this ancient road, and that made it uh, both famous and wealthy uh, city in the ancient world. It was an early center of wool production and the garment industry. And, uh, in fact, uh, Sardis claimed to have discovered how to dye wool, have been the original dyers of, of wool that spread, of course, all over, the, um, all over the world. But Sardis claims that they, they started that like that. Uh It was located about 30 miles from Thyatira, our last church. Uh, so they had about a 30-mile journey uh, to the south from Thyatira to get to uh, Sardis. It was in a fertile valley of a river called the Hermes River. in today it's uh, uh, west central Turkey. There are a series of hills um, that come out f- as ridges from a big mountain there, a mountain called Mount Timolus, uh, south of this Hermes River. And on one of those hills is the city of Sardis, about 1,500 feet above the plain below. So up on top of a, a fairly substantial mountain uh, was this city, Sardis. Uh, its location made it impregnable to attack. It, the, the, uh, the sides of these, uh, the mountain that it was on were extremely steep, so you couldn't come up on three different sides. Only on one side from the south was there any way to get up at all. And it was uh, evidently a very steep and winding path which would make it very, very difficult for an army to come up. And they could only come from that one direction so it was really easy to defend Sardis. So it was kind of known as an impregnable fortress city. Uh, The drawback, of course, was that uh, the top of that hill was a limited area. And so as the city became wealthy and was starting to spread out, there was no more room to build anything on top of this hill. And so they started building kind of a secondary city on the valley floor below. Um, so the old city made the refuge to retreat into when danger threatened, but the city had grown down to the valley as well. And then eventually, so that was the Lydian kingdom, ancient history, eventually, more closer to the time we're talking about, uh, of course, Rome conquered everything. Uh, Rome conquered all of what is today Turkey, made it the province of Asia including the city of Sardis, right in the middle of it. um, And it came under Roman control in about 133 BC. Uh, A huge earthquake destroyed it. So Turkey is uh, subject to earthquakes even today. We have big big earthquakes in Turkey. Well, there was a big one in AD 17 um, during the life of Christ that destroyed the city of Sardis. Uh, It was rebuilt by Emperor Tiberius, who was the emperor at the time. And in gratitude, Sardis built a big temple in honor of uh, Emperor Tiberius. Uh, this, the primary uh, object of worship though was uh, the same as in Ephesus, the goddess Artemis or Diana, but they, have a, they had a third name in Sardis for that same goddess, Cybele. And so in the ancient world, they, they had many different gods, but they also had the same god with different names in, in different places. And so. In Sardis, they particularly called that goddess Cybele. There were hot springs uh, near Sardis, celebrated as a spa in which the gods manifested supposed power to give life to the dead. Of course, that's ironic in the city whose church was dead. (laughs) (laughs) So in John's day, as we're uh, so all the way fast forward to the time when these uh, seven letters are going out, sardis was still prosperous but it was in decay it's it's um, its best days were far far in the past Uh, it's glory days long past and so both the city and the church had lost their vitality so then after he's given this introduction saying hey you're dead uh, you may be pretending to be alive but you're dead next jesus says this I know your deeds, but you have a name that you have been alive, that are dead, and wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Because the service church was dead, Christ skipped the usual commendation. So every other church up to this point, there's been something good he had to say about the church first. Not here. Here, you're dead. Wake up. That's the most important thing. Uh, he launches right into it without giving him any kind of praise whatsoever. Uh, he goes directly to his concern. Uh, wake up. Uh, its outward appearance may have fooled men. So that phrase there, you have a name that you are locked. So at least in outward uh, appearance, it was still a church. It was still a thriving church. There were still people going there every Sunday for worship. But they weren't fooling the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, They couldn't fool the omniscient one who knows their deeds, who sees into the heart of the church. And so this has always been the way with Christ. We've talked about this before. He has perfect knowledge of everything, um, including perfect knowledge of all of his churches, all those who claim his name, um, not only in the first century, but every century since, and all the way to today. He knows which churches are alive today and which churches are dead. He has perfect insight into that. With infallible knowledge, he pronounced the Sardis church to be dead. People, people, you may have fooled some people, he says here, but you can't fool me. This church is dead. And that has. this is a warning, of course, not only for the first century, but it's included, the Holy Spirit included in the scriptures for all believers of all time. Uh, this is an important warning that um, to, to be doing a self-assessment, um, it, it may look okay on the outside, but what is it, really going on in the church? Churches should be looking at that because Christ can see everything. Uh, and so there are many churches today, most likely, that have been defiled by the world, characterized by inward decay, and populated with unredeemed people. I think we see this in the world today, those who have abandoned uh, the truths of Scripture. So spiritual death in the New Testament is always connected with its cause, uh, which is sin. Uh, We see that in Ephesians uh, 2.1, describing the unregenerate as dead in their trespasses and sins. We see it in Luke chapter 9, in Luke chapter 15, in Colossians chapter 2, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, in 1 John chapter 3, the connection between spiritual death and sin, uh, a firm connection there, in Scripture. So, what would be the danger signs that a church is dying? So, if we have this warning, we have a church that Christ proclaims to be dead, uh, but in this particular case, there's not a specific identification of what went wrong. How, how did they end up dead? Uh, it's not, not described in there. So uh, it's left to us to, uh, to do some um, investigation of scripture and to um, try to identify what things would lead to a church being spiritually dead. What are the warning signs? Some of the warning signs could be. When a church is content to rest on past laurels, in other words, if a church has done um, great things for the Lord in the past, but then always all the church talks about is what has been done in the past, not about what we're doing now, what we're going to do next for the Lord, but always pointing back to things that have been done in the past. Uh, If a church is more concerned with the forms of worship than spiritual reality. Uh, when a church focuses on curing social ills rather than changing people's hearts through preaching the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ, if we've uh, if we have gotten away from the most important reason why a church exists, so a church exists to glorify God and to glorify Him by obedience to His commands, and so. In um, Matthew chapter 28, uh, Christ gives a command to his disciples to make disciples, to baptize them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them to obey all I have commanded you. So uh, to, to not only obey, but to teach obedience to disciples. That's the, uh, the reason for the existence of the church. And so uh, if we stray from that reason for existence of the church, then uh, that's a danger sign that the church is dying. It's gotten away from what Christ commanded the church to do, uh, to make disciples, by preaching the life-giving gospel of Christ. So that's another thing that we can look for as a danger sign. Uh, When a church is more concerned with material than with spiritual things, that's a, a danger sign. When a church is more concerned with what men think than with what God said, that's a danger sign. When a church loses its conviction that every word of the Bible is the word of God himself, that's a danger sign. So there's many things that we can look at. We can do a self-examination of our own church to make sure we don't have these danger signs of a church that is dying, and which eventually Christ might come and say, you're dead. You, you, people, you may have people fooled because you're still having worship service every Sunday, but I can see that you're dead. So these are some warning signs we can look at. And so the bottom line is, no matter what attendance a church has, no matter what status it might have in the community, such a church, having denied the only source of spiritual life, is dead. Um, so that's the warning here. This this uh, church... church at a time in the first century, a real church, heard those words uh, relayed by a messenger from the Lord Jesus Christ, you're a dead church. What what an awful thing to hear. Uh, We don't want to hear that at Hope Bible Church. We don't want to hear that from uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we need to be on our guard against the kinds of things that lead to uh, the death of a church. Uh, any questions or comments? All right. Uh, let me go on. Um, the congregation at Sardis was performing deeds. They were going through the motions, but these deeds, Christ declared, were not completed in the sight of my God. Uh, Though sufficient to give the Sardis church a reputation before men, you have a reputation that you're alive, the deeds were insufficient and unacceptable in God's sight. Uh, they were the pointless, lifeless motions of a corpse. Spiritual zombies populating the Sardis Church, living a lie. Um, they've been weighed in the scales by the righteous judge and found wanting. Jesus had judged them. They're dead. Um, just like uh, the writing on, handwriting on the wall, meaning meaning, tackle and Parson. Um, they've been weighed in the scales and found wanting. Um, the Old Testament hero Samson is an illustration for what's happening in the Sardis Church. So, if you look back to, the, uh, to so Samson, he had amazing strength. Uh, his life came to a sad and tragic end. He had this uh, temptress, Delilah, that he married. She pressed Samson daily with her words and urged him to reveal to her the early secret of his strength. Eventually, after his soul was annoyed to death by her constant crying, Samson told Delilah the truth. She cut his hair and he lost his great strength, not because of the haircut. Uh, He lost his great strength because of disobedience to God. Personal disobedience to God. God had commanded him what to do, not to cut his hair, and he got his hair cut. It wasn't the hair that provided the strength. It was obedience to God that provided the strength. Disobedience to God caused him to lose the strength. And there's a tragic verse in Judges 16, verse 20. Samson did not know that the Lord had departed from him. How sad. The Lord had been with him all this time. He did not know that the Lord had departed from him. That's the church at Sardis. Um, evidently, they didn't realize that the church, that the Lord had departed from them. Uh, once spiritually alive and strong, now blind and weak, not realizing that God had long since departed. Uh, so Christ addressed the uh, command for the faithful remnant. Uh, there is a faithful remnant. It's not many, but there's faithful for remnant. Um, there's no point in talking to the dead at this point. He's talking to the, those that are alive. Uh, if their church was to survive, it desperately needed life. Uh, Christ laid out for them the path to spiritual restoration by giving them five steps to follow. First, wake up. There was no time for indifference. The remnant needed to look at what was happening in their church, evaluate the situation, get involved in changing things, confront sin and error, make a difference wake up. Um, the second was strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. So they were there was a remnant there, but they needed to wake up and strengthen uh, to hold on to what was still alive, or it was going to die. Uh, things here, in the Greek is a neuter noun, it doesn't refer to a people, but spiritual realities. He's exhorting these true Christians at Sardis to fan the flames of the dying spark of life in this church and fan it back into uh, spiritual life Uh, the third step was to remember uh, what they had received and heard go back to the scriptures what have you received and heard in the scriptures they need to go back to the truths of the word of god remembering the gospel and the teaching of the apostles by this time uh, paul's letters were in circulation and we see that in second peter chapter three the rest of the new testament had been written So the truths of Scripture were out there for the church. They needed to uh, get back into the Word, to remember what they had been taught, to remember what God had said, to remember His Word, um, what they had received and heard. They needed to reaffirm their belief in the truth about Christ, sin, salvation, sanctification, all those things that are taught in the Scriptures. In the words of Paul to Timothy, they were to guard what had been entrusted to them, 1 Timothy chapter 6 to establish a solid doctrinal foundation to serve as a base for renewal. They needed to be in God's word, the truths of God's word, obeying the truths of God's word. Fourth, having gone back to the truths of scripture, they needed to keep them. Um, They needed to keep it and repent. Uh, Those two things, keep God's word and repent. Um, So orthodox theology, apart from obedient lives, would not bring renewal. Keep the word and repent. With remorse and sorrow, the believers and Sardis were to confess and turn away from sin, uh, and if they did these five steps diligently, that would bring revival. So there's a pathway. Christ is laying out a pathway for those that are still the remnant, those who are still faithful. This is what you need to do to revise, revitalize, and restore life to this dead church. So, uh, and Christ gives a warning about what will happen. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come. Uh, this picture of Jesus coming as a thief carries the idea of imminent judgment. Uh, we see it in Matthew chapter 24, Luke chapter 12, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 Peter 3, later on in Revelation 16, uh, depictions of Christ coming like a thief in the night. Um, imminent judgment. Uh, the threat here is not related to his second coming per se, uh, but that the Lord would come and destroy the Sardis church if there's no revival. Um, and just like you do with Thyatira. Thyatira went out of existence, that church, uh, not long after uh, the book of Revelation was written. Um, and he's warning that the same thing could happen to this uh, Sardis church. Um, and of course it can also be extrapolated into a warning of the judgment that faces all dead churches at Christ's return. Uh, The only way to avoid the stricter judgment that awaits those who know the truth and turn away from it, as uh, Hebrews chapter 10 says, is to follow the path of spiritual life. Uh, Repent and obey. So in the midst of this dead church uh, with unregenerate people, there were a few uh, true believers that remained. they were not enough to change christ's overall evaluation of the church as a dead church so his overall evaluation of dead church but there were actually living uh, true christians within this dead church um, and he had not forgotten them he wants to make sure that he had, they understand i haven't forgotten you I've, I've identified your church as a dead church but i know there are those that are true followers within even this dead church uh, God preserves a faithful remnant, that's a uh, constant theme in scripture, all the way in the Old Testament, also in the New Testament, um, and he had his remnant even in this day church in Sardis. Uh, a few sincere believers among the hypocrites, a few humble among the proud, a few separated, uh, sanctified among the worldly, a few stalks of wheat among the tares. Uh, So, the description of the remnant is those who have not soiled their garments. Soiled is from the Greek maluno, which means to stain, to defile, to smear, or to pollute. Which is actually the word that's used in the wool dyeing industry for dyeing or staining uh, wool. So, it was a familiar word to this city of people that were, many people were involved in the. World dining industry. So, garments in the scripture often symbolize character. Um, Isaiah 64, Jude 23, uh, garments are a symbol for the character. Uh, Faithful remnant could come into God's presence because they had not defiled or polluted themselves, but manifested godly character. That's the the word picture here with white garments. Uh, Christ says to them, They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. In ancient times, such garments were worn in celebrations and festivals, white robes, um, a purity of Christ's promises here in verse 5 and also in other places in uh, Revelation as we'll see, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 19, we have uh, this um, word picture of white garments. We'll see this as a repeated theme in the book of Revelation. Um, they're elsewhere worn by Christ in Matthew chapter 17 and Mark chapter 9, and worn by the angels in Matthew chapter 28, Mark chapter 16, Acts chapter 1. So this depiction of white garments uh, for Christ, for angels, and for those who are redeemed. So those who have a measure of holiness and purity now will be given perfect holiness and purity in the future. Uh, then, by way of encouragement, Christ described the rewards waiting for those who participated in the revival. True Christians, as already noted, will be clothed in white garments. Uh, we had this festive occasion of weddings for white garments. We had a depiction of the wedding supper of the Lamb, which is coming in Revelation 19. Uh, we also had incidents in uh, ancient times of celebrating a victory in battle by wearing white robes. So believers' white garments represent purity and holiness, and Christ promises to clothe Christians in eternal purity and holiness. And then he goes on to promise, uh, further promise, every true Christian he will not erase his name from the book of life, but will confess his name before the Father and before his angels. So this is a wonderful promise for those who are the remnant within this dead church that Christ makes this promise, that... um, the the name will never be erased from the book of life if you're a true follower of his, and that he will, in fact, confess your name before the Father. Uh, In John's day, in the day that these letters were written, rulers kept a register of citizens in a city, and if someone died or committed a serious crime, their name was erased from the register. Uh, Christ, the King of Heaven, promises never to erase a true Christian's name from the role of those who are uh, names were written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the land who had been slain. So, um, and so Christ will actually confess every, every uh, believer's name before the Father and his angels. Um, uh, and Christ had promised that during his earthly ministry in Matthew chapter 10 Everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess it before my Father who is in heaven. Uh, he had promised this in his earthly ministry. He's reiterating it here in Revelation in this particular letter. But we also have Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is uh, the important, most important scripture about the perseverance of the saints, the, the fact that those who are saved can never be snatched out of Christ's hand. Uh, so we're running out of time, so I, well, maybe I'll read the whole thing. Romans chapter 8. Uh, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in these things? If God is for us, who is against us? For I am am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers nor heights nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we have this promise. Nothing's going to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Great promise in Romans chapter 8. And so it ends, (coughs) in the same way as the others, with this admonition, that's two individuals. So we had a letter for the church. But each one ends like this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Not just this amorphous mass that's a church, but everyone who's got an ear, hear this. Listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Obey what the Spirit says to the churches. So, uh, we had a spiritually dead church here, but there is a remnant that's alive, and they need to wake up. Uh, so He's calling to repentance. Any any kind of um, sin in the life of any believer is uh, Christ promises that He's faithful to uh, forgive if we repent, to forgive and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is what the Scripture says. So what happened in Sardis? Did they heed the warning? Did the revival come? Uh, Well, we have this extra-biblical writings about this man named Melito. And this man named Melito served as the bishop of Sardis, actually towards the end of the second century, about 100 years after this. So evidently, the church was still there. We don't have great details, but Melito was a a good and godly man from the writings that uh, we know of from him, and he was the leader of the church, and it was still there 100 years later, as opposed to Thyatira, which was not. Um, so uh, it's not too late, for even for a church that Christ identified as dead. It was not too late for the remnant, there you were know, true believers, to take action and to re-spark, revitalize that dead church. Um, any questions? Sorry, I've run us out of time. Let me, uh, let me close this with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truths of your word. We pray, Lord, that we would hold fast to those truths and that we would obey what you command in your word. Uh, not just as a, uh, uh, as a matter of a church body, but as individual followers of Christ. That we are called, each and every one of us, uh, to obey your word. Um, and we pray, Lord, that we would be about the business that you set for your church—to make disciples, uh, to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and to teach each and every disciple that we make to obey all that you have commanded us. Uh, we pray, Lord, that the things that we do here at Hope Bible Church would be pleasing in your sight and would bring glory to your name. Uh, That's what we strive for, Lord, as individuals and as a collective body of Christ. We thank you for uh, the wonderful opportunity that we have now to worship you as a corporate body, uh, to worship you in song and in prayer and in uh, the preaching of the Word. Uh, We thank you, Lord, for all that you are and all that you do, and we we thank you especially for the great love, that sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.